0: When you're a multi-time CTO like Ryan Donovan, your objective is a simple one. Find the next challenge that coincides with a mission that excites you. As the chief technology officer at Hootsuite, the world leader in social media management, Ryan believes he has found that challenge. Ryan joined IT Visionaries for discussions centered around how he manages a global staff from the comfort of his home, plus, He explains the difference between being a first-time CTO and an experienced C-suite executive. And he talks about the struggles of managing scale. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org.
1: Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries. And today we are joined by a special guest, Ryan. How are you?
2: I'm doing terrific. Uh, thank you very much. How about yourself?
1: You know, it's a great day uh, to be talking about all things Hootsuite, your background and what it means to be a CTO there. So let's get into it. How'd you get started in technology?
2: Well, it's uh, kind of an amusing story, but I, I always uh, had a lot of exposure to technology as a kid, but it was in fifth grade is when I discovered the real power of technology because I ended up writing GW basic programs on an Apple II to automate my math homework. So I could rip through, uh, you know, like 40 or 50 equations in like 10 minutes and then get on to more important things for my evening. So that that was when I discovered I loved writing code and that kind of became the career of choice. And then, you know, literally I've never worked in anything but tech.
1: And who says math isn't important, huh? Look at
2: that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: So, uh, flash forward to today. Tell me uh, what it means to be CTO of Hootsuite.
2: So, I have, I think, one of the coolest jobs in the world. You know, I'm responsible for all things uh, building and supporting, you know, uh, the world's largest social media management platform, since we ha- certainly have more customers than just about anyone else. And it's a pretty diverse customer base spanning from individuals to large enterprises. And, uh, so it's a pretty, I'd say, awesome opportunity and also awesome responsibility when you've got, you know, 200,000 plus paying customers using your platform all day, every day.
1: Yeah. And so what is, uh, what is the scope of the responsibility for CTO? Are you working on things, you know, like internal employee uh, tech employee experience on product stuff, bit of both?
2: Absolutely. So uh, to just unpacking what's in there, we've got uh, product management, design, engineering, DevOps, security and privacy and compliance, which is a big deal. Network alliance relationships, since we obviously have to work very closely with the likes of Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. We also have user education and documentation. And then finally, our internal systems and in IT, because there's a very you know, fine line between our product and our IT systems for things like billing and account management and customer support.
1: And then so, you know, compared to kind of like the traditional IT sort of technology role, how does that play in?
2: It's a much different, uh, you know, so if we look at IT at Hootsuite, you know, that's it. Yes, we still have infrastructure, things like mobile device management, firewalls, routers, Wi-Fi access points in our offices. But You know, we also have, you know, a number of, you know, for everything that you see on the project experience itself, we have a number of tools that are built to support Hootsuite that are maintained, you know, by our own IT and engineering teams because they're, you know, they're kind of the back office of our product that we expose to the world that we use to help, you know, set up onboard large customers, troubleshoot and debug. So it's much more of a software engineering orientated IT, I'll say corporate IT experience than what you might see in a lot of other businesses.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. You know, you're know, you a multi-time CTO now. Uh, how is it different going into this role?
2: Well, I think that, so if we look at the, the nature of the business, the Hootsuite's a multi-tenant SaaS platform, as opposed to my you know, last gig was a single-tenant has platform. And then before that was an on-premise product. And if you look at my gigs before that, it was, you know, on-premise enterprise software. And I think that the, you know, SaaS brings its unique set of challenges and Hootsuite brings its own unique set of challenges, which is you're building an enterprise SaaS platform on top of social networks themselves. And so working with a Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter is very different than working with the likes of an Azure or an AWS. And so there's a lot more fluidity in terms of like API changes, uh, as well as new capabilities coming out that our customers are clamoring at the bit for us to respond to. So the pace is quite different at this role than in, uh, I'll say past roles, much faster pace.
1: Yeah, and obviously the, the pace of MarTech is, is also part of that. Um, you spent kind of a while in MarTech, why do you love it so much?
2: Well, I think it's an interesting category of technology in the sense that it's still emergent. Like people are still figuring out how to, you know, do marketing through technology. And also customer behavioral patterns are changing. Like we've already seen a huge increase in digitization as a result of COVID-19. And so I like being kind of in the front and center. Of that, uh, of like how customers conduct business digitally, it's a very interesting problem space because it is so dynamic and it's always changing. It's you know I think a little bit more interesting than say writing accounting software. Not that that can't be exciting, also.
1: Yeah, you know, obviously we yeah uh, you know, I host a couple other marketing podcasts, and so I I um I think you know the the intermixing between like the role of the CMO and the the CIO or CTO or CDO or whatever whatever. You know, a company has is so like complex and interesting right now because there's so many you know things that you need to figure out. Uh, you know, every you know CTO knows more or less you know how complex the Martech stack is, and either needs to be able to provide some insights or some help or some support or try to figure out how to work it into the rest of the technology stack that they have. And then you know, a lot of times the CMO or the marketing team is buying tons of stuff off the shelf, you know, swiping a credit card. So that kind of tech sprawl ends up happening as well.
2: Absolutely. And then, you know, if you look at Scott Brinker puts together this Lumascape every year, and I think there's over 8,500 MarTech solutions on this, year's, uh, on this year's chart.
1: Yeah, it's remarkable just how many there are. So I'm curious, you know, I'd imagine that, you know, your marketing team, folks like that, they're all using uh, a variety of different tools. Uh, obviously, they're, they're using Hootsuite. So you know, how do you manage that sort of thing?
2: Yeah, you know, we're trying to always finding a path to simplify as much as possible. But you know, where there's something that's cool, point solution, also not say no to that. Uh, it's a fine line. We have put together, I'd say in the last couple of years, some pretty good programs to simplify our internal tech stack and to be very judicious about what gets added just so that we don't lose our minds uh, cuz to your point it can get quite dizzyingly complex
1: yeah are you doing like some sort of reviews or audits or you know month or yearly uh, looks at that
2: so the way from a corporate it perspective what we do is we did a, we did all the audits and did the calling a couple of years ago now we've got a process to look at introducing something new, and then we always reassess the playing field when we've got a long-term agreement coming up for renewal. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's all well governed now, just to prevent introducing chaos. Like the days of just signing up for something with a credit card here are long over.
1: <laughs> you wrote a piece recently about you know the product of Hootsuite, and you you talked about how it's so interesting from a software development environment. Why is it so unique?
2: Well, one, as with most companies our size, you have a pretty diverse tech stack because you've come up with new things over time. You've brought in technology from other other acquisitions, which we've done several times over. But the big challenge, I think, is dealing with the networks, as I mentioned, because not only is that a unique software engineering challenge from just... Like, how do you engineer resiliency into your user experience? Because those network APIs are not as reliable as what you'd expect from like a Microsoft, Amazon, or Google, as well as just keep up with the rate of change. So it presents kind of two unique technical challenges on top of, let's say, all the other normal SaaS challenges. But there's also a whole other dimension to this, which is compliance. And so, you know, because not only do you have to be you know, account for all the usual suspects such as GDPR or SOC 2 or ISO 2701, but you also have to deal with the fact that each social network has their own terms of service that say what you can and can't do with data, et cetera. So, not only do we have to worry about all the usual compliance suspects, we actually have to have a compliance program around each of the networks themselves to make sure that, like, we're not violating Facebook's Instagrams or, you know, LinkedIn or Twitter's terms of service. And those do change quite frequently as well. For example, oftentimes you'll see very quick responses from the social networks uh, in response to, you know, uh, big pushes uh, of controversy in the media, in which case then you know, a vendor like us will have a very limited runway to respond to those.
1: Yeah. what's? It, can you share an example of something like that?
2: Uh, yes. So, well, so I think we've all heard of Cambridge Analytica. I wasn't at Hootsuite for this. So I just caveat that I'm relaying the story secondhand. But, you know, when Cambridge Analytica hit, Facebook removed a number of capabilities such as Removing access to allow third-party clients to publish to personal profiles, and so, you know, Hootsuite's development team had very short runway to deal with a bunch of just overnight changes coming in from Facebook in response to Cambridge Analytica, and that, uh, you know, that was an era or a project that I think you know is rather infamous uh, within my team for those that were there and lived it of lots of long hours, late nights, et cetera, to get it done.
1: And how does that change with like the different geographies uh, and things like that? Obviously, you know, GDPR is, you know, governing us all at this point. So I'm, I'm just curious, how does, uh, how does change in, in geolocation affect that?
2: For the most part, we've taken, I'll say, a highest common denominator approach to things. And so we're kind of looking at the intersection of like, what's the most stringent, regulations that we have to comply. And then we'll just do that across the board versus saying, okay, a user in country X can do something, but a user in country Y can't do something else. Uh, Like that would just be unwieldy to manage. So we've taken kind of more of the highest common denominator approach.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. You know, you have a team that operates across the world. So you have folks everywhere. How do you go about from a leadership perspective, managing folks that are all over?
2: Also well, one, you have to have a flexible schedule. And so some days I'll get up really early. Other days I'll have to stay on really late if it's like a call with Australia, for example. That's kind of the norm that we're all dealing with with COVID right now is just trying to be respectful of people's time zones and share the pain. Like what we do is sometimes we'll do meetings really early. Sometimes we'll do them late so that like the EMEA folks versus those in the West Coast aren't getting overly penalized one way or the other. And then Prior to COVID hitting, myself and my leaders followed a pretty rigorous quarterly cadence to go around and visit the other offices and making sure that we're, you know, connecting face-to-face with the teams there. And then we also would bring everybody to a central location, usually our Vancouver headquarters or a meeting vicinity close, close by to do, you know, big room planning, for example, a couple of times a year so that we get a chance to get a big cross-section of folks together. Uh, certainly, you know, we have to do it all virtually right now, but I look forward to hopefully being able to get back to some face-to-face in the next year or so.
1: Yeah. Well, any best practices that you found to uh, manage a, a global team?
2: Yes, absolutely. So one is share the pain when it comes to time zones don't consistently penalize you know one time zone versus another making sure that you're evening itself out and then break up big events like for example we do an all hands twice a, uh, every month we do that times two time zones we do an EMEA version and we do a North America version and we make sure that like all the leaders are available for live Q a at both times even though we may occasionally we may use some recorded segments to you know, because we can't get a guest speaker online at six in the morning, for example, when we've got topics like that. But you know, it's really sharing the time zone pain is the most effective thing I've seen to just make it a balanced and equitable experience for a global team.
1: You know, as you're building and and you know organizing your teams, um, did you have to do any shuffle when you came into the role to kind of organize things in a way that made more sense? for you?
2: So mostly I added functions that weren't in existence. So we added a program management function to really focus on making sure that all the different teams can work together as a cohesive whole. That's paid incredible dividends for us because, you know, when you harness a multi-hundred person team, as opposed to, you know, 35 agile teams in isolation. That's uh, you can you can move some much bigger rocks. That's enabled us to really take on some very big end-to-end compliance initiatives, as well as uh, you know our first UX refresh in many years. And you know, so that was like an additive function. We added a user education function and took user education from kind of a band of one on the support team to a proper discipline. Uh, and we're investing very heavily there because that's something that we've identified as an area that we can do better for our customers. But I'd say the biggest one was just getting everybody to work together as a cohesive whole. That was the, that was the single biggest change as opposed to we redrew the org chart in lots of you know, different ways.
1: Yeah, any other things that you did in the first 90 days that, uh, that were potentially uh, either interesting or difficult or challenging?
2: Well, I'll kind of explain my approach to onboarding because I think that'll hopefully share some practices people might find useful. So, you know, there was obviously what I was told during the interview process, but I took that under advisement, but decided that, okay, I'm going to do my own uh, investigative work. So, when I got, when I joined, I yeah you know, I started by meeting everybody and I meant that in the sense of not only meeting my own team but meeting the other teams in the company that depend upon the product, which is at the end of the day pretty much everybody got all of their perspectives, took copious notes like filled up OneNote with this, and then once I got through the OneNote, I started to you know mind map out kind of my findings, and that came up with kind of a, diff, a series of questions I wanted to answers and areas I wanted to go a lot deeper. And so that we then scheduled a whole round of I don't know probably 20 odd deep dives some of which were focused on areas of my within my remit other areas were looking at kind of adjacent areas that were directly touching such as customer support like for example the customer support deep dive kind of outed uh, the need for a dedicated user ed function because the assumption that we didn't need that was not really a true assumption at the end of the day. And then uh, from there, kind of built the action plan to really, you know, transform the product and product strategy and get everybody aligned. And that's when we did a pretty large product strategy exercise uh, to figure out where we should be focusing and why, because one of the things that came up through this learning process was, you know, we have trouble focusing. So this helped us find our focus. And now we've gotten, you know, with that in mind, we've now gotten into execution mode and are kind of managing to that and just getting ready to take a breath and kind of look at, okay, how has market conditions changed since we first put the strategy in place? What's changed? What do we keep doing, double down on, et cetera? How else have we gotten smarter and uh, we'll make tweaks for our 2021 plans and then just kind of rinse and repeat uh, going forward. I think the key takeaways are is don't, make don't assume and don't shoot from the hip you know by the, when i made changes it was based on actual data having taken the time to get to know the people and understand what the actual issues were and understand the context and history behind things i did not walk in the store with a predisposed playbook of well this worked at company x therefore it's going to work here so sweet. now instead tried to just learn all of the things and that really you know uh, if, if you go by what I was told versus actuality, they were two different things at the end of the day.
1: Were there any things that you did kind of like that you would go back uh, and, and it doesn't have to be with this role, but even in previous CTO roles, you know, where you'd go back and say like, hey, I'd probably do this a little different. Uh,
2: so I think that Hootsuite, uh, Hootsuite, the journey, I'd say it'd be, I'd largely do what I did because I think I, you know, as you pointed out, this isn't the first you know roadie I've been to, so I kind of feel like I got some of those kinks worked out of the system. Whereas if I went back and looked at some of my previous roles, such as uh, Sitecore, probably would have done certain things a little bit faster or more quickly. Yeah, that makes sense. What about like driving innovation?
1: How do you all manage innovation at at Hootsuite?
2: So innovation is something that. I've worked very consciously to change the definition of because I felt like that the organization's definition of innovation was somewhat narrow. And so, you know, the traditional hypothesis on innovation is that it's a whiz-bang thing that somehow that you've got that nobody else has. But that's just one dimension of innovation. The other dimensions of innovation is you know, user experience. Uh, Like that's one that I'm a huge passionate believer in and why we're investing, you know, a higher degree in UX than we've invested in many years prior to my joining, because that's a really good innovation. Let's just rewind the clock back to 2008. The iPhone 3G and the, you know, first Android phones like the Nexus One didn't do a whole lot of things that, like, say, a Windows Mobile 6.5 or Blackberry device didn't do, but they did so in a much more elegant way. And their UX just rocked it. And that's how, you know, Google and uh, Apple pretty much ran Microsoft and Blackberry out of, the, out of the smartphone race entirely within not that long of a period of time. That just shows you the power of user experience from an innovation perspective. So, tried to add UX in. Other one is end-to-end customer experience. Like, how do you be like the most helpful? How do you be that trusted business partner as opposed to just a tool? And that's where like Salesforce did really well with their, you know, kind of inventing the book on customer success, so to speak. So you have to look at the entire piece. And like this is an area we're really diving deep into because you know, with a customer base of several hundred thousand paying active users. How can we leverage the insights that we have, in addition to being one of the most mature players in the space, to then help our customers become more successful with social? Because one of my observations is that most people that are doing social media are relatively immature, feels a lot like e-commerce did circa 20 years ago. And so there's a huge opportunity to help people be more successful. So, what I want, what we, I think one of the areas that I'm excited about from an innovation perspective is using Hootsuite Scale to help the more immature customers become like the most mature customers that we have, because we certainly see quite the spectrum uh, within our customer base. And usually, the most socially mature customers, you can point it down to like a small handful of individuals that truly get social media and have driven that that level of, of uh, marketing innovation. So how do we replicate that at a bigger scale?
1: Yeah, it's a great point. And it's a great kind of case study in innovation for a tech product, because I think, you know, social media, obviously being extremely new in terms of, you know, the broader scheme of things, and then, you know, tools that manage those being extremely new and kind of the rules of social media are constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. But I think for for so long, people, you know, kind of the immature companies who are either doing nothing or just randomly posting now, you know, get a tool that they can say, okay, well, I can schedule things now and I can, you know, do the prep work ahead of time and figure out where we're going. And that's kind of just table stakes. And then you have like the, you know, the 201 and the 301 versions of that of how am I going to respond to people in real time? How am I going to respond to things in real time? How am I going to actually create a dialogue and not just push, but actually pull information? And all of those create, like you said, this massive divide in who's doing it great and who's doing it, you know, not great. And so from a technology perspective, like I'm sure a lot of the users that you have are extremely, you know, immature in their knowledge base for how to use, how to do social media, even though they might, might not be immature in using technology.
2: Absolutely. You summed it up. Uh, and this is why we also, you know, have a very strong partner ecosystem to bring in kind of those best of breed point solutions to do that. So like, for example, our social listening product is co-developed with Brandwatch, who's a you know leader in deep listening and sentiment analysis and brand reputation analysis. And so that's like how we, you know, that's like just one of many examples of how we help our customers be more effective with social, because that's like one of the next logical steps you do after you start posting or responding to direct inquiries. Just like uh, at some point, you're going to want to start to do analytics. And then at some point, you're going to want to grow beyond that and start to do end-to-end attribution. So you can say, okay, I acquired this new customer that bought something over my website through a social channel. So let's attribute that customer to social as opposed to some other type of digital marketing spend. And so we've got solutions to help you do all of these things. But to your point, there's a, there's an equal amount of work to bring customers along that journey because like the stuff that we're talking about is you know, right now, I'd say, largely reserved for the most mature. So we see huge opportunities for innovation to help the masses and leveraging our scale to do so to go down that path.
1: You talked about you know, UX a little bit. Like, how do you get inspirations for great UX? How do you think about
2: designing for UX? So, for me, I think it comes down to having a really good user research program and really looking at how our customers actually use our product. And you know, does that always turns up very different uh, use cases? Because, like, on the one hand, you might have somebody that's like sitting in a TV newsroom that's posting you know, two to 300 times a day. On the other hand, you might have somebody that's maybe posting once a week or once a month and making sure that you understand like the different classes of users and the journeys they want to take. So like the TV newsroom example, you know, they're all about efficiency, and minimizing the number of clicks to get it done. Whereas, you know, the more occasional user, you know, they need something that's very helpful and welcoming to help maybe remind them of, you know, what they might've forgotten in the couple of weeks since they last used the product. And so, you know, we have to cater to all of these. And so making sure that we understand those spectrums and that, you know, we're designing, you know, a welcoming and accessible user interface for all of them is kind of how, how we think about, you know, UX innovation.
1: So you obviously have, you know, a ton of customers. Um, how do you manage like the scale at which the platform operates? Like what is your infrastructure look like?
2: Well, so obviously we, our user research can only touch a small slice of this, but we also have in-product feedback surveys that our customers are very vocal about, like sending us thumbs up or thumbs down. So we obviously leverage that in addition to what we can just do from a one-on-one interaction perspective. And when we go to roll out new capabilities, we generally A, B test them to make sure that there's no significant issues before we roll it to all you know, all 200,000 plus paying customers. And that's a playbook that's worked quite well for us. So like, you know, if you look at our UX refresh, we made that opt-in for folks in uh, early July, got tons of feedback, learned a lot of things, addressed those things before we made it uh, mandatory for all at the end of August.
1: And then what about like, you know, even even deeper than, than that for, for the entire platform, you know, like, how are you thinking about things like, you know, cloud and on-prem and all that stuff?
2: Well, nice thing is we're multi-tenant, we're a multi-tenant in the cloud, have been since day zero. So, you know, uh, on premise isn't even in our vocabulary.
1: <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I mean, yeah, obviously we do we interview, you know, CIOs and CTOs of all walks of life here uh, on on IT Visionaries. But, you know, when you talk about stuff like that of or, you know, day zero, never even never even thought about it. I mean, what do you think that that adds to your capacity, to your speed, and to your scale?
2: Well, it certainly gives us the ability to go fast. And so that's the beauty of multi-tenant SaaS is that everybody's all there. You're not having to deal with, like, customer-by-customer customer migration. So a good example of, uh, of this, of, like, the beauty of the speed that we have is... Uh, a recent Instagram API change. So Instagram deprecated their core authentication API. They announced it in December. They gave the partners access to the API end of December. So it's right in the middle of holidays. Really not useful until January with a deadline of moving everybody over by March 31st. You know, we had the scale and agility to be able to go and do this. And we actually had all of our customers moved over by early March, which was ironic because we finished the last migrating the last cohort the day that Facebook announced that their ecosystem couldn't deal with uh, that change that quickly. And then they extended it another three months. But we were like, oh, great. We're already done.
1: That's crazy. Wow.
2: Yeah, but that's the beauty of having a multi-tenant SaaS platform is that, you know, we can, we can deploy changes globally or also on an A-B tested basis very easily. And, you know, testing is very much a key part of how we roll out new functionality to make sure that we're getting it right. Any reasons you wish you had uh, on-prem? Uh, zero, to be on, uh, zero, to be honest, because we've got a very robust ecosystem story. We can play nice with the rest of your MarTech stack even if it's on-prem uh, or homegrown. Like we've got some of our larger customers who have got like their own homegrown digital asset management systems, So we'll tie in, integrate with all of that. But I'm actually very grateful that we're 100% in the cloud and we don't have to deal with, you know, client by client, uh, tenant upgrades and migrations.
1: Anything that, um, you know, I, once the pandemic hit and, and you were... Um... You know, kind of faced with a lot of those changes. Uh, Any any leadership lessons for times in a crisis?
2: Over communicate. So we started when as this hit, we I started out doing these org wide updates. You know, basically as things were happening, such as like you know, guess what? We're going to start having this office work from home. Here's how we're going to handle it. To coming up with you know policies on the fly, like how to like we listened to people. So like we came out overnight with a program to take monitors home because that was like the number one thing people started asking for as we were telling them, yeah, you've got to go home. And that that then settled into the entire executive team taking turns and doing communications to everybody two to three times a week, just saying, here's what's going on, here's being really transparent about it. And you know, using that as a forum to listen and adapt because there is no playbook for a pandemic at this scale at this day and age. I mean, the closest thing that happened almost a, literally happened 102 years ago with the 1918 flu. So, you know, we've done that. And the communication, uh, the over-communications has been extremely well received by our employees. They love it. So we've actually kind of made that part of just business as usual going forward. And I don't think we'll ever back off of that now, but that was the key to maintaining and building trust through this was just being over communicative and uh, very transparent with what's going on and having the, yeah I'll say the wherewithal to admit when you don't have the answers, but then say, all right, here's the plan for how we're going to figure it out.
1: So what's next for Hootsuite from a technology perspective?
2: You know, we're going to continue to focus on innovating and delivering the best social marketing tool set and the best social selling and employee advocacy tool set in the world. We've got pretty ambitious plans around how we're going to continue to move the needle there. UX is obviously going to play a major role in that, as is uh, end-user education. So we can help those that are, shall we say, less socially mature become more socially mature along the way. And that's what we're going to be focused on in the 2021 and beyond, and I'm pretty excited at what we've got in store. Meantime, we're always looking deep under the hood to try and figure out ways to build a more reliable, performant, and resilient experience around the fact that, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, these, uh, the social network APIs are not what you'd get from uh, Google Cloud and AWS or an Azure. All right, let's
1: get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. Just like the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience, you can go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more. They're the best. They've been with us since the very first episode of this show, you know, three quarters of a million downloads ago. We love Salesforce platform. Check them out salesforce.com slash platform. Lightning round questions, Ryan, are you ready?
2: Absolutely. Hit me.
1: Number one, what is your favorite app on your phone?
2: Probably Google Calendar, because to make sure I know where, uh, what my next meeting is, that's certainly the one that gets the most, uh, the most use. So I normally say what app is the most fun? And I said
1: favorite on that one. And whenever I say favorite, I always get a business app or like a productivity app. So what app is the most fun? Because a calendar, I'm with you. It's by far the most productive thing for me too. If it's not in my calendar, it doesn't exist.
2: I'd say for fun, it's probably either the social networks themselves or being that I'm a bit of a nerd. I like apps to track uh, aviation and shipping. So uh, flight radar 24 and marine traffic are also two, two favorites. So I can see what's flying in the skies over my head and my house in Seattle is on the lake. I can see what's sailing, sailing past me.
1: Have you picked up a habit during shelter in place?
2: No, actually, because I uh, probably in my last roles, couple of roles, I was remote. So I actually had really enjoyed Hootsuite and actually going back to the office. So it's kind of more falling back into, into uh, old habits. But uh, it's the, I'd say the thing that's most different is that all the things you used to be able to do, like go see friends, go out to dinner, et cetera, that's all been kind of canceled because of COVID.
1: Sure. Yeah, of course. Do you have a book or a podcast or TV show or something that you've been binging recently?
2: Uh, So I'm a pretty voracious reader of mysteries. And so I, uh, one form or another. So I've been, you know, I'm always, you know, one of my biggest discretionary spend bills is uh, Kindle every month. And so right now I'm reading the next uh, iteration in the, Uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series, uh, the fifth book in that series right now. But yeah, I'm a voracious reader of mystery novels.
1: What's one piece of advice
2: that you would have for a first time CTO? Listen and understand the context before you make a decision. I think that a lot of people, um, I, I was guilty of this, thought that I had the answers. And You don't necessarily have the answers. And by taking the time to get to know people, understand the context of why things are the way they are before uh, making any implementing a change of some sort, you'll, one, build better relationships with your teams. You'll bring people along for the ride, and for sure you're going to learn stuff along the way. And we'll probably end up changing course as a result of those learnings. So it's just taking the time to, be very diligent about uh, doing that uh, would be, I'd say my advice to not only first time CTO, but anyone in the first time senior leadership role.
1: What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often?
2: Well, uh, so ironically, one of the, developers in all hands actually did ask me this which is how technical are you still and so uh i would say uh so i've got a, i'm i am a hobbyist technology i still write code for fun usually to automate stuff around the house like also really kind of getting into home automation and using like uh Apple Home and Google Home and playing around with that. So it's kind of cool that like now if somebody drives up my driveway, I get an alert on my phone because my security cam has caught that. And uh, I also just like to experiment with like all different platforms. So I've got, you know, a, a Mac, I've got a Chromebook, I've got Windows machine, got a Surface you know, just to try and stay fresh with everything, realize that there's lots of different platforms and lots of perspectives. As I, you know, because, yeah, some people treat technology like it's a religion. I tend to be very democratic and all-inclusive about it and realize that everything's got a a purpose and want to understand and have that perspective. Well, that's it.
1: That's all we got for today, Ryan. I really appreciate you uh, coming on the show. Any uh, final thoughts? Anything to plug?
2: Uh, nope. Uh, nope. Thanks uh, for the time and the opportunity. It's been a genuine pleasure. And uh, I'd say my parting thought is, is that we're in an unprecedented time of digitization. And it's going to be super interesting to see not only for us how the world of social media evolves, but just digitization in general evolves over the next couple of years, given the unprecedented change that's happened with uh, COVID this year. So it's an interesting time to Very interesting time to be in technology.
1: Indeed, couldn't agree more. Thanks again
2: for joining. Thanks a lot. Have a great rest of your day.
0: IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.